As of late, over the past couple of Sundays, we've been discussing together the subject of suffering from a biblical perspective. This morning's message is a continuation of those thoughts and is entitled, In God We Trust. As a little boy, that phrase, that slogan was one that you heard a lot more than you hear today. It's still on our currency, but I think that living in a post-Christian America, that's more of a matter of lip service than it is a statement of affirmation. In other words, we see in God we trust everywhere we go, but as far as America is concerned, our particular country, and we're not here to preach America. The church was around before America, and if this world stands long enough, the church will be around after America because God didn't come to establish, He didn't send His Son to establish America. He sent His Son to build His church, and His Son has ushered in a kingdom. There will be a final phase of this kingdom forevermore in eternity, and the word America won't even be uttered in that day and age. So we're not here today because of America. We're here because of Christ. But as a little boy, that statement, in God we trust, was something that we heard a lot. I was a Cub Scout, and I was a Boy Scout. And as a Cub Scout or a Boy Scout, depending on what age I was, the concept of trusting God and having faith in God and relying on God and honoring God was very much a part of the theme of being a Scout. In God we trust used to be something that all Americans believed. It was something that made it into our political speeches. It was something that our founding fathers, some of them believed at least. And it's something that today we don't hear commonly in our country. Because of that reason, I chose it as the title of today's message, In God We Trust. Those thoughts have been in mind all week, In God We Trust. And I hope to share one point in particular with you today that's been resounding in my mind all week, a very rebuking statement, a very pointed statement that has convicted me, and I know will convict you, I believe will convict you, and we'll come to it momentarily. In this series that we have undertaken on the subject of suffering, first of all, we considered the cause or causes of suffering in the world. Now, we live in a world full of suffering, and it is inevitable. It is unescapable. Suffering is just a part of the human experience. We all suffer. We will all suffer. We have all suffered. Whether you want to go present, past, or future, suffering is simply a part of our experience. And we consider the causes of that. Why does suffering exist in the world? Well, all suffering is traced back to Adam's transgression. God made a perfect paradise called Eden in the beginning of time, God looked at the world, and not only was it good, but it was very good. Everything was good. It was a paradise. And through Adam's sin, through Adam's rebellion and transgression, he brought sin into the world and death by sin. And so we live on a cursed world. We live in a world that naturally brings thorns and thistles. We eat of it by the sweat of our face. The sorrow of women was multiplied and their conception was multiplied. Their desire shall be to their husband, Happy Mother's Day. And we live in a very broken world because of sin. But we know that there are secondary causes of suffering in the world. You might suffer suffering because of divine chastisement, chastening. God may chasten you, and that is many times in the form of suffering. There are judgments that are sent upon peoples that are in the form of suffering. We might suffer persecution because as we studied last week when we considered what it means to be a follower of Christ, we all as followers of Christ will experience some degree of kickback in this world because the world hates your Christ. Because the world hates your Savior, the world hates you. Because it can't afflict the Savior. Oh, it tried in his life. The wicked of this world tried to stone him. They tried to throw him off a cliff headlong. They eventually tried him, scourged him, and crucified him. And he defeated it all in the resurrection. But because it hates him, it hates you. And because it hates you, 
Because the wicked of this world hate you, they will do what they can to afflict you. You may suffer persecution and tribulation simply because the enemy has marked you. And lastly, we learn that sometimes we suffer for a special purpose, like Lazarus or the man that was born blind, that God would glorify us, or glorify rather himself through us. God would glorify himself through us. Secondly, last week we emphasized at the close of the first message and last week we emphasized what we can learn in suffering. We learn in suffering. It's amazing to know that everything we go through in this world, whether good or bad, we can learn something in it. As a kid, that was another thing that they taught us, always be learning. You never stop learning. You are to learn in everything. If you haven't learned something in the past year, you haven't been paying attention. Or if you were, you were paying attention to the wrong things. We learn life lessons in suffering. First of all, our frailness. Nothing like laying in the bed with 103 fever, not able to taste your coffee, with body aches that go down to the core of your bones to teach you your frailness. By the way, some of us experienced that last year. It was called COVID, where we, we had brain fog and fatigue and laid there for 8 to 10 hours a day awake when we were not asleep. Nothing like breaking a bone or ending up in the hospital from some terrible infirmity to reveal to you your own frailness. If you go through suffering and you recover and you come out of it thinking how strong I am, you've missed the point. Because suffering teaches us our frailness, and if we recover, it's by God's grace. Suffering teaches us to make better decisions. When you suffer because you did something foolish, according to Proverbs, that ought to teach you to make wiser decisions in your life. There's one individual in Proverbs that Solomon writes about a lot who doesn't learn from the stripes, and that is the fool. The fool doesn't learn when he experiences the blueness of the wound, as Solomon would call it. We learn our dependence on God when we suffer in the world because, again, seeing our frailness, we understand that there's only one in creation who can help us in our moments of grief and suffering and despair when our bodies are sick and unable to recover, when we are injured and we are healing. We, more than at any other time in our life, understand our dependence on God and we are drawn to Him. We call out to Him The afflictions are like fires that drive us to a place of sanctuary, that sanctuary being the presence of our God. And in life lessons, we also experience some of the most beautiful moments in our life during periods of suffering. And I use the example, if you've ever been in the room with a loved one in their final moments and you hold their hand as they slip off to be with Christ forever, that expression on their face, that feeling that you have in that moment, it is so peaceful. And you learn so much in those moments that you simply wouldn't have understood otherwise. Now, we can learn a lot in our moments of affliction. At the same time, as we studied, and this is just in review, trials burn away the dross. Understanding our frailness and our dependence on Him, going through what we experience in moments of suffering, the dross is burnt away. And so we have a more purified form, as it were. Fires in creation burn the impurities from precious metals like silver and gold, and so do trials burn away the impurities in us so that we grow in sanctification. Also, we experience God's power more intensely in our sufferings. He comforts us. He loves us. He is with us in our moments of grief, and so... Like a parent comes to the aid of his child, so does our Heavenly Father come to the aid of us when we suffer. And because of that, we experience his presence. Now, after I delivered those thoughts, I don't think that any of you rushed in line to be first in line to wait for affliction so you can experience the presence of God. We don't want to suffer. We're designed in such a way to do whatever we can not to experience pain. And this is for a reason because pain is the warning sign that something is not right. It's the service engine soon light in our bodies. So we naturally do whatever we can to avoid it. But when we suffer, God as a father draws close to us and we experience him and his power in a way unlike when everything is at ease. And so... As we concluded last week, his strength is made perfect in weakness. Because of that, Paul gloried in his infirmities 
rather than in visions or any other such thing. And finally, afflictions make us yearn for glory, our final and true home. As John wraps up his book and the completed canon, the book of Revelation, it ends with, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Your experience in this world ought to cause you to yearn the second coming of Christ. Sometimes we get so comfortable in this world that we think, Lord, not today. Today is a good day. Today is a great day. Oh, we have ease and peace and comfort and food and we have entertainment and we have fellowship and friendship and family. This world isn't so bad. And so, Lord, maybe another day, but not today. But if there's one thing Scripture is emphatic about, we are to be yearning for his second coming. It doesn't take but a few of the sufferings of this world to make us yearn for his second coming. Because this world is not our final home. Our final and true home is glory. A home made without hands in the heavens, as we sang today. Afflictions make us desire to be with Christ, which is far better. Today we return to this theme, but my focus is going to be what ought to be the mindset of a disciple of Christ in moments of chaos. The mindset in chaos. And again, remember the title of this morning's message, In God We Trust. In God We Trust. First of all, as we introduce these thoughts to you today, understand that no matter who you are, where you are, in whatever culture you are, or nation you are, whatever continent you are on, chaos is inevitable. Now, if you want proof of that, you just come, come hang out with my children for a couple of hours at home. Chaos is inevitable. Jesus spoke to this fact in the Olivet Discourse, and we'll use Luke 21 to emphasize this. You could read Matthew 24, which is usually where I turn for the Olivet Discourse, but there's a statement in Luke 21 that I want to give you that I think depicts the mindset of most in our country over the past 13 months now, 12 to 13 months. Luke 21, Jesus has been shown the temple and all the buildings that had been built around it, how it was adorned, verse 5, with goodly stones and gifts. These men are impressed with the architecture of the temple. And we are so impressed with architecture, with elaborate buildings, with huge buildings. In fact, people still go to this part of the world today and they look at the ruins of some of these buildings in the Middle East or perhaps in Rome as they see the Colosseum or they go and they see the giant archway that is... I believe in the name of Titus, you, you just see so many old buildings that men look at and they are enameled. You have non-Catholics who go to the Vatican, non-Catholics who go to the Vatican and are enamored at the architecture. We are visual creatures. And we look at impressive structures and we are amazed by it. But did you know Jesus is not the least bit impressed with the architecture of the temple, the things that have been added to it, and the adornment with goodly stones and gold in his day? When they say, Jesus, look at all of these buildings, Jesus says, not one stone here is going to be left standing that is not thrown down. And he spoke about, first of all, the destruction of Jerusalem. The city would be destroyed because of their rejection of him. They would be judged. All the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and 29 would come to that generation. And before this generation passed, all of those specific things regarding the destruction of Jerusalem would come to pass. The disciples hear him say those words and they ask three questions. When shall these things be? What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the world. Jesus answers three questions when they ask him those three questions. Some of his answer has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. Some of his answer has to do with the second coming. And some of his answer has to do with the destruction of the world. Master, when shall these things come to pass? Jesus answers and says, Take heed that you be not deceived. What a statement for today. 
Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. One thing that has happened since Jesus came into the world, and even before, is false Christs have come and claimed to be him. I was scrolling the internet a few weeks ago, and here was another dude in Jerusalem who was claiming to be the Messiah, the Christ. And he's an antichrist. He's not the Christ. Christ came. When Christ comes again, you don't have to wonder, has Christ come again? If someone comes and says, I'm Christ, I'm here, come worship me. He may even sit in some sort of a temple and declare himself to be God. Do not believe it. When Christ comes again, you'll know. How will I know? A trump shall sound and the world will hear it. The dead in Christ shall rise. If you're curious, drive as quickly as you can to Maple Hill Cemetery. Because there will be hundreds of bodies leaving the ground and floating into the air. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. There will be people alive, the wicked, who are running to hide from the wrath of the Lamb in caves. You won't have to wonder, is this really Jesus? Because when Jesus returns, there is no mistaking it. And then he will gather all nations before him as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. He'll separate them to those on the right hand. He says, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to those on his left, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. There is no mistaking the second coming of Christ. People will claim to be Christ. Notice verse 9. Chaos is inevitable. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, Matthew's version of this says wars and rumors of wars. Are there wars and rumors of wars today? There are. There were last year. There were the year before. There were the year before that. The year before that. I'm going to list off several in just a moment. Over this past week, one of the headlines was that China is expanding their military presence in the ocean. And what do men's hearts do? They begin to faint for fear. Oh, what if this is war? What if we're going to be attacked? What if we're going to be destroyed? That may come to pass. But there's always an impending war. There's always a rumor of war. There's always a commotion. You remember the Navy standoff in the... Some body of water last year with us, and I think Iran. You back up through time, a couple of three years ago it was, I think we had bombed an airstrip in Syria. Constantly these things happen in the world. Anytime a president runs on no military anti-war, I just laugh. It's amazing, no matter who's in the White House, the other party is anti-war. And the party of the person in the White House is pro-war. Do you ever notice that? Anyway, I notice because I pay attention. You hear of wars and commotions. Be not terrified. All these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. He said unto them, Nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's pretty terrifying, and it has happened from that time on. What else? Great earthquakes shall be in diverse places. Earthquakes. When I was a little boy, I remember seeing scenes of a terrible earthquake out in California. How many of you remember that, seeing that on television? It made me so afraid of earthquakes that every night when I went to bed, as a little boy, I'm talking about first, second, third, fourth grade, I would pray that an earthquake didn't happen overnight. It impacted me. And I had this list of, of prayers. Lord, I pray that we don't have an earthquake, and I pray that we don't have a volcano because I was afraid that a volcano would erupt and blow up our house. Last time I checked, there's not a volcano in Leeds, Alabama. And yet that's what I prayed as a little boy, because I had seen on the news footage at night of a volcano erupting. What volcano erupted in the early 80s? I don't even remember. Saint, Mount St. Helens. I don't even remember the name. But I saw it, and so I was terrified of it. Jesus isn't necessarily telling us signs before the end of the world. He's telling us what happens between his first and second advent, between his first coming and his second coming. Now, what's interesting is when these things happen, people begin to say, oh, this is it, this is the end. When Jesus is saying these things happen continually before my coming, 
The point is that we be not terrified by them. What else? Famines. What is a famine? When we've studied some of them from the book of Amos on Wednesday nights and the book of Joel, famines where the crops are damaged and people don't have food. Pestilences. That word actually means epidemics. Epidemics will happen in the world. They've been happening the entire time. It's one of the stories of human history because sickness is a result of sin and all men are sinners and so there are occasional pandemics. We've had one for the past 13 months in this country that we're rounding the corner on. Praise God for getting to the other side of it. But you rewind history. There were times when our church didn't meet because of smallpox. There were times when our church didn't meet because of the Spanish flu. I knew a man when I was a little boy who had polio when he was growing up. And because of that, part of his body had not developed the the same as the rest of his body. The word I was looking for was symmetrical. Pandemics. You read back to the bubonic plague. You know half, as many as half of humanity died from the black plague? Half. It happens. That's the story of humanity because of sin. Sickness and death. We act like if things like that don't happen, we'll just live forever. You know, there's a completely different set of humans on the planet today than 150 years ago. Completely different set of humans. Where did they go? They died. Everyone who ever lived before now is dead. You're not going to make it out of here alive. I don't mean church. I mean earth. My sermons are long, but they're not that long. Famines and pestilences, fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. Signs from heaven. This means that sometimes when things happen in the world, there's a divine cause behind it. And we know that sufferings are common to man, but at times there are sufferings that, and events that happen in the world that God sends. I've been reading in my Bible, reading through the first few books of the Bible in addition to several other places. But one thing that you see very clearly in Exodus and Numbers is people do something that offends God and God judges the people that did something to offend God. Last night it was Korah and his band of conspirators who spoke against Moses and so God opens the ground and it swallows them alive and closes back up over them. And then all those that stood with Korah, he sent fire down from heaven to devour There were other times when they murmured, so he sent snakes. There were times that they murmured. Right after Korah, they begin to murmur, and Moses sees a plague going through Israel, and he has to run and stand between the people and the plague and beg God, and the plague was stayed, and everyone on the other side of him died. Signs from heaven. Sometimes when things like that happen in the world, God is judging the world. And when that happens, praise be his name. His judgment judgment is just. He is holy. God isn't at fault. He's not wrong when he does things like that. It is right. It is right when God judges. His judgment is just. All of these things happen. Notice what occurs after this. Before all these things, they shall lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues. He's speaking to what his disciples will experience. They'll put you in prison. You'll be be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. He goes on to tell them, don't worry about what you're going to say when they deliver you up. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say in those moments. You'll be hated of all men for my name's sake. Verse 17. But there shall not a hair of your head perish. Some of these men, most of these men, were put to death for their faith in Christ. How then did not one hair on their head perish? Because... Ultimately, God has the vengeance. Ultimately, God has the vengeance. In the resurrection, God has the final say. His children have the ultimate victory. And in that day, he writes every single wrong. God is not mocked. Some of you that suffer with hair loss, you can claim onto that verse. I'm going to have a full head of hair in the resurrection. Praise God. 
Not a hair of your head will perish. In the resurrection, everything is put back right. How do we usually react to these things? Verse 25, there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and waves roaring. What is it when the waves roar? Well, you could have a storm, you could have a typhoon or a hurricane, or you could have a tsunami, which is a result of an offshore earthquake. Do you remember the tsunami that happened a few years ago? What a terrifying thought is that? Sitting there on the beach, enjoying time with your family, an earthquake happens, and here you come a 40-foot tidal wave that destroys everything, and people are pulled out to sea, and 200,000 people are missing or presumed dead. Those things happen in the world. They happen in the world. Men's hearts failing them for fear. Men's hearts failing them for fear. And for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now much of this passage, this sermon, had to do with the time before the destruction of Jerusalem and the time after the destruction of Jerusalem. But some of these things seem to indicate events in the world directly before the second coming. For instance, men's hearts failing them for fear... They shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things come to pass in the world, look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. That does not pertain to A.D. 70. Because in A.D. 70, nobody was looking up thinking that they're about to be resurrected and ascend up into glory with Christ. That's pointing to a future event, a future day. When these things begin to come to pass, look your head up, look up and lift up your heads. Your redemption draweth nigh. Christ is soon to return and take you to be with him. A world full of such affliction and suffering and calamities and wars and rumors of war that the hearts of men fail. That's one of the statements that I've meditated upon this week. Men's hearts failing within them for fear. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. And then he says, Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. What does that mean? There are enough things to worry about in one day. You don't have to worry about tomorrow or the next day or the next day. So many times we live our lives consumed with fear that we miss even the things that we need to worry about today. What do I need to worry about today? Loving my wife, for one. Loving my children bringing them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, preaching this message to you, loving you, praying with you, remembering the various afflictions of this congregation that I'll pray for before I lay my head down. There are things that I need to be doing today. In my lifetime, which as of this year is four complete decades, in four decades... Some of you have been here twice that long. In my short life, I cannot tell you how many military encounters our country has experienced. Bombings. Downed helicopters. And every time, men's hearts fail for fear. We've been in three wars, official wars. We've had a drug epidemic. We had the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, and that was terrifying for a child. We thought if you got near somebody with AIDS, you were going to get AIDS and everybody was going to die. Little kids don't understand that. Parents need to understand and old people need to understand the way kids interpret things. Let me just tell you, if you've got young kids in the house, keep the news off. Keep the news off when they're awake. We've had several seasons of civil unrest in our country. L.A. riots. Before I was born, there were riots around the country. Some of them were in Birmingham. I have a shotgun my grandfather bought at that time, inherited. Nice browning. But it reminds me that there was civil unrest even back then before I was born. You had the unrest that happened around 2012. 
You have the unrest that has happened over the last couple of years in our country, especially last year. We've had seasons of riots. Somebody made the joke, is it's riot season, I still have my COVID decorations up. That's funny, but I mean, it kind of makes light of a terrible situation. You know, people are burning other people's houses and businesses down. That's sin, it's wrong. No excuse for that. We've experienced in the 40 years of my sojourning domestic terrorist attacks. And when I say domestic, I mean on the U.S. soil from both non-U.S. citizens and U.S. citizens. Oklahoma City, it was an Atlanta bombing when I was little. You had 9-11. I was at work when I heard about that, surveying a wealthy person's lot in a subdivision that adjoined a golf course in Pinson. And all of a sudden you hear on the news that buildings are exploding and falling and Men's hearts fail in them for fear. That wasn't even the first attack on the World Trade Towers. It was bombed when I was a little kid. Three recessions. Three. You had the recession in the late Clinton administration. You had the, or during the Clinton administration, you had the recession right as George W. Bush trades off the presidency to Barack Obama and you had the recession caused by you know, closing the economy during COVID. What else? Well, over the past year, what has happened in culture that made men's hearts fail in them for fear? You had riots, you had a pandemic, you had all of the political confusion and uncertainty. And might I just say that as bad as men's hearts failing in them for fear before we had social media, people were either in an outright panic over COVID or an outright hysterical paranoia over government. Now, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but that's usually what people toss to and fro between. And it was one or the other. I've tried to keep myself from both of those extremes over the past year. How should we feel in those moments? And that's the question that we consider today. We want to speak to very definitively from Scripture. Now, the, out, or the average person is tossed to and fro between a panic and an outrage. And right now, over the past year, but really my entire life, I remember all the hysteria during the 90s over who was running for office, who was going to be elected. If you haven't noticed, cable news exists to sell ad revenue by keeping you absolutely in a panic so you stay tuned in. And they don't want you to miss a day. No, they want you to tune in the very next night because if you don't, your life and the country and your future depends on it. You know what? I turned those guys off a long time ago. My life has been better, and nothing changed by me not watching it. Not one thing in the country changed. Well, what's wrong with the country? Ben quit watching cable news. It all happened when he quit watching cable news. It's just irreparable damage because he turned it off. And I don't care which channel you watch. They're all a bunch of liars. I don't mind telling you that. The average person is tossed to and fro between panic and outrage. And over the past 13 months, if you were not one, you were probably the other. <laughs> we are not immune to this. But that reaction, sadly, is more akin to the reaction of atheism than it is biblical Christianity. That thought occurred to me very powerfully this week. To be in a panic or an outrage in moments of calamity or confusion or suffering or affliction, to be in outrage or panic the way we have been perpetually over the past year is more akin to the reaction of an atheist than a Christian. Because the atheist has no faith, he has no belief, he has no knowledge of God. And so when the world falls apart and inflames in a blaze of inglorious inferno, he has no one to call upon. There's no one guiding the future. There's no one who rules and reigns. There's no Lord God omnipotent that reigns in heaven and earth on the throne. There's no one on the throne. 
And so the gods of the atheist are either the most powerful things they know, which is government or science, so-called. The Christian is not to respond to calamity the way that the atheist or the agnostic responds to calamity. In America, there are plenty of people who believe in God in a sort of a deistic, open theistic sense, but when you get really down to it, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and died for your sins? That's when the number begins to be whittled down. I talked to you today about the God of the Bible. I talked to you today about the God who rules and reigns, who sits upon his throne in heaven. Now, am I telling you that we ought to just embrace a Pollyanna lifestyle where nothing ever bad is going to happen and you know, name it and claim it, prosperity for everyone who follows Christ. No. What did Jesus say to his disciples in Luke 21? You will be hated of all men for my name's sake, and these terrible things are going to happen in the world. But through all of it, I'm with you. And ultimately, eventually, I'm going to deliver you from every bit of it. And so, like Paul, we just have this mindset. We ought to, to depart and be with Christ is far better I yearn for that home, and I am saved from the despair of my affliction by the hope of that resurrection. A believer is to have a completely different reaction to what we see in the world around us today. Now, as I mentioned the calamities of Luke 21, or the four decades I've wandered around this world, was, just ask you a few questions, was God affected in any way by any of those calamities? Did those calamities affect him? Was God scared of getting COVID? Was God worried about somebody burning down his holy temple in glory in a riot? Is God threatened by a building up of the Chinese Navy? No. Is God upset or is his dominion threatened by a change in administration in American government? No, God's not affected by any of that. Not affected by any of that. Was God surprised by any of that? Do you think God, in glory, in November, sat up all night waiting for the cable news pundit to tell him who won the election in the United States, concerned about it as if his world was going to come to an end if it didn't go the way that he wanted it to go. No. No, God wasn't concerned about that at all. Were any of the things that I just mentioned to you outside of his sovereign control? No. If God is not affected, if God is not surprised, and if none of these things are out of his control, how then as a follower of God should I interpret and respond in those moments? I ought to be a person who rather than experiences fear of any of those things, I should be a person who trusts, a person who has complete confidence in God. If God wasn't affected nor surprised, nor were these things out of his control, why would his people fret? Why would his people fret? Why would they lie awake at night worrying? Why would they have their day ruined? Feel anxiety and grief and all of this wave of emotion that people have experienced on any side of any of these issues over the past year in particular, but honestly... There's always the latest calamity. There's always the latest scandal. This is life on earth. There is no utopia. Do you know the word utopia comes from a word which means doesn't exist? I ought to tell you something. There will be no utopia on earth, but we know there's heaven and glory with Christ in paradise. And we yearn for the paradise. We will always be disappointed if we expect this world to be the utopia because, again, it doesn't exist. Now, two points I want to give you as we transition into the last part of our message today. First of all, 
we want to consider a few statements from Scripture about God himself. And from that thought, we want to transition into our fitting trust in him, the fact that we ought to just trust in him in all of those moments. I want to direct you, first of all, to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Now, Isaiah 6 is written in a troubling time in Isaiah's life. In the year that King Uzziah died, what happened? A king died. That's trouble. That's political uncertainty. That's an issue in the world. It's not something that you just explain away. Well, it was no big deal. No, it was a big deal in the world. Their king had died. Think about how many negative things happened after the replacement of a good king in Israel or Judah. You have a good king, the good king dies, you have a bad king, and everything bad happens during the bad king. As a king would be sinful, the people would become sinful. As the people would become sinful, here comes God's judgment. As God's judgment happens, the next thing you know, you have a king that fears God, and the cycle begins to repeat itself. It seems like every 40 years that cycle happened in the history of the nation of Israel. In the year the king Uzziah died. Very troubling time. I saw also the Lord. Now where does Isaiah see the Lord? You know, God has appeared in many different ways in this world. He walked with Adam in the cool of the day. He appeared as a man before Abraham in the plains of Mamre, before destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. He appeared as a captain of the Lord's host, Christ, a theophany, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ, the second person of the Godhead before Jericho fell. He appeared as the fourth person in the fiery furnace in Babylon as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into the fiery furnace. Where does Isaiah see God? I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train, his glory filled the temple. This isn't the temple in Jerusalem. No, this is God's holy temple in glory. Do you know where God is today? He hasn't moved. He sent his son into the world. But even then, when Jesus described his incarnation... He says in John 3, no man ascends up to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even he who is in heaven. In other words, the second person of the Godhead, though he were here incarnate, was still somehow there. I can't understand that because it is as if an ant is trying to understand an angel. You're a finite man and you can't understand God. Where is God? He's in his temple. Where is our Christ? Where is his son? seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. What does a throne invoke? Not only royalty, but also reign. Uzziah dies, God's reign isn't threatened. You have an earthly king who dies that throws the nation into uncertainty, and yet God's reign wasn't threatened. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now, around the throne of God are these creatures, these beings. They're described here as seraphims. Among the angelic hosts, you have angels, you have cherubim, you have seraphims. The purpose of the seraphim seems to be to fly around the throne room of God at all times, Worshipping him continually and perpetually proclaiming his reign and his rule and his goodness and his holiness. These seraphims cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Thrice holy. Not once, not twice, but thrice it's interesting in Scripture, when God wants to get someone's attention, He calls their name twice. Abraham, Abraham, here am I. 
And yet here, God's holiness is proclaimed not just twice, but thrice. Also being a reference to the fact that God is a triunity. The Godhead is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, what does Isaiah say? Well, I'm really glad I'm here. Look at this. I get to see something I've never seen. No. Woe is unto me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. Oh, he thought the king had died, but he'd seen the true king. I have seen the Lord of hosts. Whether you're talking about Isaiah or Ezekiel or the Apostle John or Daniel, over and over and over, men in Scripture that are blessed in a vision to see God on His throne, they all respond the same way. In Daniel it says His comeliness was turned to corruption. John falls on his face in Revelation 1 as if he's dead. The blessed thing to understand is in every one of these moments, the heavenly host comforts the one who had seen him. He lifts up John. He lifts up Daniel. Here, when Isaiah says this, a seraphim took a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar and laid it upon his mouth. What does that symbolize? See, Isaiah is going to be sent to preach. But he says, I'm a man with an unclean mouth. I'm a sinner. How do I go preach? I have cleansed you with the fire, is what he's being told. Your mouth has been sanctified, Isaiah. And there you have the conversation. Who will go? Who will go preach to these people? Here am I. Here am I. Send me. Now the... Interesting thing, and you find these passages quoted in the ministry of Christ. You go and they'll hear, but they won't understand. They'll see, but they won't perceive. The heart of this people is fat. Make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their ears and hear with their hearts and understand with their heart and be converted and healed. Isaiah sees him. Now, this glimpse of seraphim and what they cry out. We find it again in Revelation 4. Four beasts of them had six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. They rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Another statement that is uttered on the cross is similar to that. In the book of Revelation 19, a whole multitude of people crying out, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Anytime the world is in calamity or confusion or turmoil or suffering or affliction or tribulation, whether in a culture or personally, I want you to remember that God is on His throne and that fact ought to frame everything else you understand about it. God is reigning. The psalmist speaks of this so many times. Read for you just a couple of them. Psalm 115 and verse 3. Sometimes when things like this happen, people say, Where is God? Where's the Lord in all of this? Because they've been taught in American Christianity that if God is with us, we'll never experience anything negative in the world. That's not this world, but the world to come. Psalm 115, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Now I gave you the three statements, one from Isaiah and two from Revelation, to say that not only is God on his throne, there have been powerless floundering kings in the history of humanity that sat upon a throne and could do nothing. But that's not God. 
No, God is on his throne. God is in the heavens and he has done whatsoever he has pleased. He has done whatever is pleasing to him. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes, but they see not. Ears, but they hear not. Noses, but they smell not. These false idols. God is in heaven. He does whatever He wants to do when He wants to do it. Psalm 135. I know that the Lord is great, verse 5, and that our Lord is above all gods, that is to say false gods. Whatever the Lord pleased, that did He in heaven and in earth, in the seas, in all the deep places. God does what He wants to do. Daniel 4.35, He works His will among the army of heaven, the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? Who uttered those words? Sounds like the words of a prophet, right? Well, it's in Daniel. Maybe Daniel said it. No, Nebuchadnezzar said those words because he walked out and he looked at Babylon and he said, look at this great nation that I have built by my power for my might and immediately a voice from heaven sounded and he said, Nebuchadnezzar, for seven seasons, you're going to be out of your mind. You're going to crawl around on the ground and you're going to eat grass as an ox. His nails grew out like talons. His hair grew out like matted feathers. Dreadlocks, I guess. And for seven seasons, he walked around like an insane person. And then God restored his mind to him. Nebuchadnezzar says, I was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. And he goes through all of this story. He tells about it. God dealt with him. You read about that in verse 33. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven. Mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. What's His name? The Most High. And I praised and honored Him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? Does that sound like a God that somehow this is all out of His control? No. How that should frame my mindset. Oh, how that should frame our understanding. This is half the sermon. I don't have time. Isaiah 46. Comparing himself to the idols, God says, Bel boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. Their idols were upon their beasts and upon... The cattle, your carriages were heavy loaden. They are a burden to the weary beast. You've got all these giant colossal images of false gods that do nothing. But God begins to say, to whom will you liken me? And make me equal and compare me that we may be like. He talks about how they make idols. But then he says, remember the former things of old. I am God and there is none else. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From things, from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. Saying what? Saying what? Look down and read it. My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Christian, I hope that as we go through this message today, the way you view this world is changed. God is on a throne, ruling and reigning. He's omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. He will do all His pleasure. Why in the world am I afraid? In all of the chaos of this world, what I ought to be wondering is what God is doing. What's His agenda? How's he intervening? Is this a judgment? How do I respond? Might I tell you, no matter the cause of the suffering, common demand, judgment, chastening, persecution, or even sufferings for a special cause, your response is always to be the same. Humility. Every affliction is to be answered with humility from the child of God. You know what? If I'm humble, I'm not screaming about it. If I'm humble, I'm not outraged. If I'm humble, I'm begging and pleading to God. See how that changes everything? 
I know we only have a couple of minutes remaining, but this is a serious question. I'm going to ask you, in whom do you trust? Do you trust in yourself? Do you trust in your strength? Do you trust in Western society? Do you trust in capitalism? Do you trust in the Constitution? I like capitalism and I like the Constitution. Do you trust in your political party, no matter which one it is? If you trusted in any of those things over the past 10 years, you've been disappointed as much as you have been comforted. Because it doesn't matter who you are, those things are going to offer you no comfort in the world. Do you trust in science? Boy, that word is used like a god today. You know, it's amazing that the same people who say science, science, science when you're talking about a vaccine want to turn around on the other hand and tell you that people can choose their gender. I didn't choose my chromosomes. Hello? Don't put the gender on the birth certificate. What? Don't you dare tell me that's science. That's stupid is what that is. Anyway, that's not a theological statement, but it's true. What do you trust in? Psalm 20, what was our opening passage? What was our scripture reading this morning? Psalm 20. Look at verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. What do you trust in? It better be the Lord. It better be the Lord. Because if you trust in anything else in this world, you will be disappointed. If you trust in Him, no matter what you experience, you'll never be disappointed. Because he's with you. Now, there's a couple of passages I want to read without commenting because it's 1159. The first is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We would not, brethren, have you to be ignorant of our trouble, which came unto us in Asia. Wait a minute. I thought if I were a disciple with full faith and obedience, I wouldn't experience trouble. Well, Paul says we would not have you, brethren, ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength. We couldn't bear it. It was more than we could bear. Insomuch that we despaired even of life, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. To be a Christian in some cultures is to have a walking death sentence. But you don't trust in yourself. You trust in God which raiseth the dead. Who delivered us from a great death, from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Past deliverances, present deliverances, future deliverances. God is our Savior. You read the Psalms and you've got salvation from illness and enemies and plagues and destruction. He saved us from hell. He saved us from death and sin. He'll save us from this evil world. He'll save us to glory, but he saves us each and every day of our lives. Paul had learned not to trust in himself. He learned to trust in God. I said I wasn't going to comment. Turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. That'll be our last passage today. You know, in Job's suffering, he didn't understand why things were happening in his life at that point. There was a colossal battle between Satan against God. Satan has challenged God and all the terrible things that happened in Job's life, all that affliction. Job makes a statement, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Can you say those words? Though he slay me, I will trust him. What degree of trust and faith is that that Job depicts? Hebrews chapter 13. We'll read verses 5 and 6. Let your conversation, your lifestyle, be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. That's a statement for us all to memorize. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do 
to me. Why? Because I trust God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who rules and reigns today. As we bring this thought on suffering that we've considered over the past three weeks to a close, the last thing that I want to exhort you to do is in the afflictions of this world, the chaos, the calamity, do not go with the masses because you will be in despair. Rather, be ye separate. Cast your care upon him, for he careth for you. Literally, he is your caretaker. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for caring for us and providing for us. We know, Lord, that this world is one that there is always another calamity, and we know that greater ones than these are coming because that's life in this world. It waxes old as doth the garment and Despite all of these terrible things, we know there's coming a day when Satan himself will be loosed and he'll go about this world destroying, causing war and division and suffering and sin. Lord, we pray that we would be delivered from such, but we pray ultimately, Lord, that we would be found faithful as a counterculture of people not of this world, that we wouldn't be alarmed and paranoid about any of the things of this world, having no fear of it, in one direction or another, simply having childlike faith and trust in you that no matter what befalls us, everything's going to be okay because you're taking us to a world where there will be no sickness or death. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and we say together, amen.